Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Veith, and this is Rebel History. A dull orange glow reflected off the dark metal of the Smith & Wesson 38 Special. Its hammer cocked, daring the two men to make a move. Heavy brass lamps swayed with the rolling waves, casting the deck in fitful play of light and shadow. Drop the knife. Frenchie hesitated only a moment, then relaxed the muscles in his tense calloused hand, and the rigging knife fell to the deck. You've double-crossed us, Frenchie repeated, this time with more certainty in his voice. Whipping wind and pelting rain assailed the Zev. Kennedy Company's brand new superboat anchored a few hundred meters from shore. Hands in the air, commanded Hubbard. He fired a shot in the air, scanning the pitch black of the nearby beach for a signal. No response came from the darkness. Frenchie and Chris exchanged a quick glance, sensing Hubbard's unease. Hubbard fired again, shifting his gaze between the shore and his frozen captives. Frenchie moved his feet slightly, adjusting his stance. An idea seemed to cross Hubbard's mind and settle on his mouth as a smile. To the front, the imperious young man boomed. The two men turned slowly toward the bow, hands raised to the angry skies above, and marched dejectedly forward. He tossed a length of rope at Frenchie. Tie him up, he motioned at Chris with his revolver. I'll check the knots. Frenchie shot the young man a glare, murder in his eyes. Good. Now give me your wrist, Frenchie. Adeptly, Hubbard cuffed him to one of the rails. We are going for a ride. Hubbard weighed anchor and swung the ship away from the shore and into Padilla Bay and the raging storm. In spring of 1926, Roy Olmsted was forced to sell his large Mount Baker mansion and many of its lavish furnishings in order to pay his mounting legal fees. He was looking ahead to his second trial and an appeal of the Whispering Wires case in circuit court in San Francisco. After the Whispering Wires trial, the Olmsted crew was right back to smuggling. Prosper Granick was delivering loads aboard the Three Deuces to the remote northern coast of the Olympic Peninsula avoiding the denser population of beaches near Seattle. The product was loaded onto trucks and driven down the peninsula on the newly christened Washington section of the US Route 101 to Olympia. Then, back north on newly paved US Route 99, which just a year before had been called State Route 1 and would ultimately become Interstate 5. The roundabout route was necessary to avoid surveillance around Seattle, but it was costing the operation time and gas money, so they set about exploring alternatives. 
They'd heard rumors of smaller outfits sending alcohol across the border hidden in train cars and decided to look into it. Olmsted made contact with their Canadian supplier, Consolidated Exporters, and hammered out logistics for the scheme. They bribed a train crew in Vancouver, who would stow cases of whiskey in one of the cars. Once past the border, the train would stop at a remote intersection with a road where trucks driven by Olmsted's men would be waiting. The cases of whiskey or beer then unloaded and driven to Seattle. Alfred Hubbard's allegiances were shadowy at best. He told Olmsted about his cooperation with the government and becoming an undercover prohibition agent. The two men and their families had lived together and it was clear Olmsted trusted him more than most. Hubbard continued providing intelligence to the prohibition office, but secretly kept Olmsted's operation one step ahead. An American ambassador in Vancouver discovered their railway scheme and called on the State Department to set up a bust. Undercover agents were sent north to place a $5,000 purchase with Consolidated Exporters. But inexplicably, Roy Olmsted arrived at their hotel and ID'd them as agents. The bust was a failure, but none the wiser, the Prohibition Office still placed their trust in young Hubbard. Increased scrutiny on trans-border rail shipments inspired Roy's crew to try a bold tactic. Donning a gas mask from the World War, Olmsted descended into a petroleum gas train car. The mask was defective, and he was rendered unconscious from the strong chemicals. His men had tied a rope around him and were able to pull him out to safety. Despite the near-death experience, he approved the idea and the crew began hiding shipments in the large tanks making their way down from Canada. In late spring of 1926, a grand jury convened in Seattle to hear testimony for Olmsted's second trial, which included additional bootlegging outfits and named more individuals than the first trial. The government began making arrests. Most of those named in the indictment surrendered immediately and were released on bail, but over 100 escaped to Canada after someone leaked a list of the accused. The heart of the case would be evidence and testimony provided by Hubbard while he was working undercover. Days later, the papers caught wind that Alfred Hubbard was an undercover agent and ran the news as front page headlines. In a statement to the Seattle Star, Hubbard quipped, Well, if you pull a cat by its tail, you expect it to bite. I've taken part in every phase of the booze game. I have run it on boats, by automobile, and have ordered thousands of cases from British Columbia, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the ring. I've had a lot of fun, though, and I guess a lot of people will be trying to remember when they last saw me now that I have been identified as a prohibition agent. Olmsted was vague in his response to the media remarking that he and Hubbard had worked together on a radio business, but knew nothing about him working for the government. Doc Maynard lost his re-election for Seattle mayor to the conservative Bertha Landis. On June 7, 1926, she was sworn in as the first female mayor of a major city in the United States. For years, she'd toiled passionately against what she perceived as the evils of alcohol and vice. 
Her impact was felt immediately as she reformed the police force and set up a special committee to battle the Rum Runners. She also sent a request for assistance to the young upstart director of the newly formed FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, but was turned down as he saw prohibition as too messy an issue. By 1926, the Coast Guard had built an updated fleet of rum chasers. The modern ships were built for speed and featured powerful machine guns that could rip through fleeing vessels. With these hungry metal sharks patrolling the Puget Sound, Olmsted and other smaller smuggling rings started sending shipments further down the coast to Gray's Harbor and the city of Aberdeen, Washington. North Bay, marked by a 107-foot lighthouse, and Willapa Bay, both presented friendly grounds for smugglers. Located near Washington's southern border with Oregon, the small towns populating the region looked out for the rum runners in return for kickbacks. In Aberdeen, the top export was lumber from its huge sawmill, followed closely by moonshine, produced in the freshly logged hills. Al Hubbard petitioned his bosses for a transfer to the small coastal town, and Whitney finally relented, as Hubbard was now too recognizable to be of any use in Seattle. He was often accompanied by Chief Field Agent Earl Corwin on his trips out to the coast. Corwin had become disenchanted with his work as a prohibition agent and considered resigning. Hubbard convinced him that Aberdeen could use a radio station and the two entered a joint venture, launching KXRO with Whitney acting as their lawyer. The project did not last long, however, and shut down after only two months. In exchange for his increased autonomy, Hubbard agreed to frame another fellow agent, George Benner, who had long been a thorn in Whitney's side. In a rare moment of cooperation, Roy Olmsted agreed to be the bait, as he also had it out for Agent Boehner, who'd been collecting bribe money from him, but offered little in the way of useful information in return. Olmsted arranged a meeting late at night in Volunteer Park. Hubbard had supplied Olmsted with two bills, their ID numbers marked, and then hidden waiting with Agent Corwin nearby. Boehner slipped into Olmsted's car and emerged a few minutes later. The car's lights flashed and sped away. Boehner knew he'd been played as Hubbard and Corwin emerged from the darkness and proceeded to confiscate the bills. After receiving the news of his illicit activity, Prohibition Director Roy Lyle dismissed him from the force. In Aberdeen, Hubbard quickly ingratiated himself to the local smuggling and moonshining operations. He also picked up a new girlfriend, who had been dating one of the local boys, but found she had eyes for the mysterious government agent. Hubbard's first wife had filed for divorce, no longer wanting to take part in his uncertain schemes. By chance, his childhood friend had become one of Grays Harbor's most prominent bootleggers, Ben Newman. Hubbard set up a meeting at Don's Oyster House in Seattle to pitch his old pal. Over dinner, they discussed a deal, and it was agreed that for a percentage of profits, Hubbard would provide protection 
for Newman's operation. Hubbard's intention from the outset was to scam his old friend, collecting protection money while he built a case against him. One night at Hubbard's hotel room, Newman introduced him to a man named Merrills, but Hubbard already knew the tan, blonde man to be Andy Anderson. Andy was an experienced smuggler and one of the best captains in the state. Newman hoped that together the two of them could devise a plan to drop liquor closer to Seattle, reducing shipping costs. Anderson and Hubbard decided on a spit of land, Williams Point, close to Bellingham, a sprawling mining and railway town a few hours north of Seattle. The first shipment was a success, and soon Newman was smuggling large volumes of whiskey to the area. Looking to fill a void created by the hobbling of Olmsted's ring due to the ongoing trials, Consolidated Exporters, who had enjoyed a near monopoly on the export of alcohol from British Columbia, was infiltrated by undercover agents in San Francisco, and over 100 of the company's California employees were arrested in a large-scale raid. The Joseph Kennedy Export Company in Vancouver sought to take over the market and invited Hubbard North of the border to view their new $40,000 superboat, Zev, capable of carrying 600 cases of whiskey, over a half a million dollars in today's terms. The shadowy company wined and dined the agents, putting them up in the Hotel Vancouver and touring them through their warehouse with its tens of millions of dollars in alcohol. After a failed attempt at sending products south via rail, the company asked Hubbard to accompany a shipment aboard the Zev on its journey to Williams Point. Hubbard agreed and immediately started planning the seizure of the Zev. He headed up to Vancouver and made contact with the smugglers. Captain Chris Scrondale and his engineer, Frenchie Barican. Once they divulged details of the plan, Hubbard returned to his room and phoned fellow agent Richard Fryant, who would set up an ambush on the beach. When the Zev reached Williams Point, Chris rowed a dory ashore and returned with Fred Norse, who spotted Hubbard as he climbed aboard. My god, is that Hubbard? Get that load the hell out of here, he cried as he jumped back in the dory and rowed hard for shore. The two men moved to attack Hubbard but he pointed his revolver at them, commandeering the ship. Unable to make contact with his fellow agents on the shore, Hubbard sailed the ship through the stormy waters of Padilla Bay to the Coast Guard station in Anacortes. Finding the station deserted so late in the night, Hubbard marched his prisoners two hours through the pouring rain to a hotel where he was able to phone for backup. The media loved the story, and it was dubbed a heroic capture by the young rum runner turned prohibition agent. The bust and evidence collected by Hubbard over the preceding months was used to arrest Ben Newman and his associates, a huge win for the prohibition department. William Whitney and Roy Lyle set about filing a case against the ring. In response, the Kennedy Company sent one of its lawyers to Seattle to give testimony that they'd paid Hubbard $8,000 in bribes over the preceding months. 
Word of the case reached Washington, D.C., and the intelligence unit, an arm of the Internal Revenue Service, under Chief Elmer Ira, began an investigation into Hubbard and the Seattle Prohibition Office. Agents from Oregon traveled north and interviewed members of the Seattle Prohibition Force and various bootleggers who claimed Hubbard had collected protection money. They also looked into Hubbard's bank accounts, finding that despite having only a meager federal salary, Hubbard had been living a life of luxury, enjoying fancy cars, a state-of-the-art camera, and jewelry for his new girlfriend. The agent's report suggested that Hubbard, along with fellow agent Richard Fryant, should be dismissed from the Bureau of Prohibition, and charges should be brought by the Justice Department. Seattle Prohibition Chief Roy Lyle traveled to D.C. in an effort to defend himself and his agents. In meetings with the Prohibition Commissioner, Dr. James Doran, and Assistant Prohibition Commissioner Alf Oftedal, Lyle succeeded in buying a little time for his office. In October of 1927, the second Olmsted operation trial was set to begin, but the man himself was nowhere to be found. Instead, the prosecution went ahead, trying its convictions of 40 individuals. The group composed of smugglers, policemen, state officials, and coast guardsmen. The star witness for the prosecution was young Al Hubbard, who claimed he was renouncing the rotten business of bootlegging and sought to do the right thing by aiding prohibition agents. Hubbard gave detailed insight into Olmsted's rum-running enterprise, from wholesale imports to police payoffs to their distribution network Hubbard laid out the entire operation for the jury. After five days of arguments, the case went to the jury. Only 14 of those named in the indictment, the smugglers, were convicted and their sentences were set to run concurrently with sentences from the first Olmsted trial, meaning they'd serve no additional time behind bars. After the conclusion of the trial, a wife of smuggler Benny Goldsmith punched Al Hubbard in the face, prompting William Whitney to threaten the forming crowd with his revolver, yelling, Peace in the name of the United States. Roy Olmsted resurfaced soon after, boasting a fresh tan and his signature grin. A third trial began November 8, 1927 pertaining specifically to the bust at Woodmont Beach. This time, Roy showed up for the trial, and agents were surprised to see him shaking hands and catching up with Al Hubbard outside the courtroom. The trial lasted only two days, and Olmsted was acquitted of all charges. Convincing testimony from Elsie Olmsted claimed that Roy had woken her up in the middle of the night and said he was going to help unload a shipment of liquor owned by Al Hubbard and everything would be fine because Hubbard was a prohibition agent. A few weeks later, Olmsted received bad news. The Supreme Court had refused to hear his case, and he was ordered to begin his sentence at McNeil Island Penitentiary on November 29, 1927. On his way to the ferry, Olmsted stopped to talk with the reporters. He remarked, you can't tread on live coals, 
without getting your feet scorched. I know that, always have, and I'm not complaining now. I violated the law, that is always wrong, and now I'm going to pay the penalty. Every bootlegger goes into the game for one thing, the dollar. That's what I did, but it cannot pay and never will. A man might violate the law for quite a while and make huge profits, but unless he pulls out of it, he will be caught and punished. Asked why he got into the business, Roy responded, Well, I got into a mix-up in the Meadowdale raid in 1920. Then I saw the big money to be made in the early days of liquor smuggling. I did make money, and pretty soon I was so deep into the business that I couldn't get out. You see, a man in an illicit enterprise has to trust others, and sometimes they throw him down. That's what happened to me. Once you are in the liquor game, the price of liberty is treachery. You are caught, and then, to gain immunity, you have to turn on your pals. They, in turn, have to squeal on someone else to go free. And so it goes, down the line. But I have always refused to pay the price of liberty. And here I am. I have lost my home and my money. But when I come out, I am going to apply my energies and ability to some lawful activity. And with the help of my best little pal in the world, Elsie, I am going to be a success.